I just want to read Psalm 1, and then we're going to turn to Ecclesiastes 7 and 8, um, because I think you're going to struggle with Ecclesiastes 7 and 8 if you don't have the right context and the frame of mind that you should approach that with. So, Psalm 1, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night, he'll be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The reason I turn there is because I just want to be clear as we, as we look at Ecclesiastes 7 and 8, and you're, you can go ahead and turn there now, none of what we just read in Psalms 1 is overturned by what we're going to read in Ecclesiastes 7 and 8. And as we started Ecclesiastes, I mentioned that it's really important that you, you look at the phrase under the sun versus under heaven. We're about to read a section that deals with how life works under the sun. When we are standing from our perspective, how is it that it looks that life works out? In fact, at the very end of this section, in, in halfway through chapter 8, verse 9, all this I have seen and applied to my mind to every deed that has been done under the sun, wherein a man has exercised authority over another man to his hurt. That's covering part of that section of, that starts in chapter 8. But jumping all the way back to 7, uh, if you look at 8.15, So I commended pleasure, for there is nothing good for a man under the sun, except to eat and drink and to be merry. And this will stand by him in his toil throughout the days of his life, which God has given him under the sun. So we see that, that and then I'm, I'm sorry, it mentions it again then in verse 17, that again, under the sun. So just understand then that as we look at these two chapters, we're looking at from man's perspective, what is wisdom and what is understanding and what is knowledge of the world around us. And it's going to talk about how, how Solomon, the wisest man that had ever lived, as he approached this and spent a lot of time studying it, what he came to understand and what he came to see in the frustration of that activity for him. So starting in, in chapter 7, verse 1, a good name is better than a good ointment, and the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. And we, we get that. That makes some good sense, that a good name is better than a good ointment. And, and I look at this as, as avoiding having an illness, avoiding needing your reputation repaired is better than the treatment to repair that reputation. The healing treatment is better than, or is not any better than just, just not getting sick to begin with. The day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. And for a lot of us, we're like, well, well that makes no sense. And then when you hit verse 2, it's better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting because that's the end of every man and the living takes it to heart. So we've covered that a little bit before. That's a, that's a, terrible way to look at life, isn't it? That, that death is better than being born and that uh, it's better to, to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting, better to be at a funeral than it is to have a Christmas celebration. That makes no sense. 
But that's what Solomon, as he looked at this world under the sun, and he sees this to be true. And he, he gives us some ex- explanation to it because that's the end of every man and the living can go there and they can take it to heart. Well, what are they taking to heart? They're taking to heart that this life ends and boy, you better be careful or this life can end badly. It can end prematurely. It can end in, in sadness. Here's how you avoid it. You go and you look at these things. Sorrow is better than laughter for when we face a sad heart or for when a face is sad, a heart may be happy. And that, that's, again, a difficult saying to digest, yet we know it's true. The mind of the wise is on the house of mourning. The mind of fools is in the house of pleasure. It's better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man than to listen to the song of fools. And we've covered in Ecclesiastes that God has made a time for everything and everything in its season under heaven. Again, God has granted us both the good and the bad. And and Solomon, as he looks out over the world, he says, you know what? In acquiring wisdom and acquiring understanding, you're going to learn a lot more through hardship and sorrow than you're going to learn through happiness. And I'm sorry, but that's pretty messed up, isn't it? I mean, how many of you want to sign up for that? How many of you who have gone through that are like, I'm really glad I went through that. That was awesome. Let's do that again. None of us. We saw that when we studied Job, for sure. That's not, the, that's not, the, it's not how we are wired at all. And it's not how we're meant to live. We're studying Revelation right now, which is the ultimate triumph on this earth for the King of Kings and Lord of Lords over all of the nations, over all other false religions, and over all people. What a great time of celebration. And, and, but that's according to the plan of God and what's going to occur This earth without God's intervention is what Solomon's dealing with here. For as the crackling of thorn bushes under a pot, so is laughter of the fool, and this too is futility. As I was reading that, I looked up from my Bible and I told Elise that I just had a thought of Kamala Harris, which is probably not very nice, but if you've heard her laugh, it fits the verse pretty good. Um, for the, the crackling of thorn bushes under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool, and this too is futility. In fact, if you look later in this, I just made a mistake because I said something bad about leaders, and you shouldn't do that either in chapter 8. But she fit. For oppression makes a wise man mad, and a bribe corrupts the heart or destroys the heart. So as, as looking at, with wisdom on this world, Solomon looks and he sees oppression of leaders over the people underneath them, and it makes him, it makes him crazy. That word mad there wouldn't be upset, it'd be more crazy. And a bribe destroys or, or, or corrupts the heart. Seeing bribery take place makes his heart sad. The end of the matter is is better than its beginning. Patience of spirit is better than haughtiness of spirit. You go through and you persevere and you try and get to the end. That's better than the process of getting there. The process of getting there is drudgery and difficult. It's better that you're patient than the fact that you enjoy the trip along the way and you're proud. And we see that in sports all the time. You don't want to have, you don't want to go in with a proud attitude. You don't want to go in believing that you've already won the the match and you haven't even finished it. Instead, you should be patient and slowly work towards your goals, hoping to get to the end of the matter. 
And when in the end of the matter, then you can relax. The process isn't the good part. And that's not right either. Do not be eager in your heart to be angry, for, for anger resides in the bosom of fools. We can all certainly agree with that. Do not say, why is it that the former days were better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask about this. Okay, so how many people have ever done that before? All of us, right? Yeah, I remember when I was a kid, we played outside. We got to run around to the lights turned off. We played kick the can and Red Rover, and, and we did things that are now oppressive and thought of as being racist and insensitive. But boy, those were the good old days. Well, it says here, yeah, don't, don't do that. Why is, it, why is it that the former days were better than these? For it's not from wisdom that you ask this. You can do that, but it's because your memory doesn't really remember those former days. Your memory doesn't really remember. I remember what a great childhood I had, but I can only do that remembering the fact that we never turned on the air conditioning living in Nebraska. But we had an air conditioner, and it was brutal. Um, thank goodness for basements. So we don't tend to remember how things really were, and we tend to, to overemphasize the negative of what our lives are right now. We do that all the time. It's pervasive in our society. And Solomon looks at this and says, you're not, you're not actually remembering correctly, and you're not understanding everything that went on then or everything that goes on now because you can't. We're going to get to that at the end. You can't see and understand everything going on. Wisdom along with an inheritance is good and an advantage to those who see the sun. For wisdom is protection just as money is protection, but the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the lives of its possessors. It's a good saying here. And again, you have to be careful as you're working through Ecclesiastes that you're not applying something that isn't wisdom, but instead something that's wrong with the world and using, applying it to your life. Well, this is one of those things I think you can actually apply to your life where you see that if you are wise, you will make good decisions that allow you to avoid premature death even. You can lengthen your days through wisdom by making good decisions and, and avoiding in this culture, avoiding upsetting the leaders above you who can shorten your life or uh, avoiding situations that could shorten your life. Whereas money, sure, there's some protection from money, but money, if anything, has the power as well to shorten your life. I have a good friend who is very, very wealthy, and he has two children, and one is, um, he, would, he would give her all of his money at this point and he would be fine with handing her her inheritance. His son, he said, I can't, he's not in my will. There's a trust fund set up that allows him to have a small draw, but if I, he got all of his inheritance all at once, if I were to die today, um, he'd be dead within six months. The money would kill him. If only he had some of the wisdom I've tried to give him over the years, that would preserve his life, but the money itself is no protection to him in that regard. Verse 13, consider the work of God for who is able to straighten what he has bent. And that's a truth that each one of us, I think, really needs to hold on to is the idea that, that how our lives, how your life is playing out and where you are at is ultimately in the hand of God. 
He is the one who has you exactly where he wants you. Now, we're not looking at your day-to-day decisions. And we're not saying that God is making your decisions for you. You're still responsible for all those things. And you're responsible, if you're in a bad situation because you've made bad decisions, you're responsible for that. But don't remove from that the fact that God himself is the one who is in control of all things. In fact, verse 14 says, In the day of prosperity, be happy. But the day of, in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other. So the man will not discover anything that will be after him. If you turn back to Psalms again, Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. If you continue there, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully, he shall receive a blessing of the Lord and the righteousness of the God of his salvation, from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, even Jacob. God, the earth is the Lord's. That doesn't mean he owns everything. I had an epiphany this week, and this is going to be kind of silly, but um, to some of you, the, the whole phrase that the Lord owns the cattle on a thousand hills. What, what cows are those? Anyone have any idea? Is that just like a, a pretty picture in your mind? That God's really wealthy. He has a thousand, he, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And you're like, well, yeah, he's, he's got, he owns everything. Well, no, he owns your cattle. If you have cattle, those are some of his cows. They're all his. Everything that, that you have is the Lord's. The whole earth is the Lord's, and not only the, the possessions, the material goods, but your life as well is in the hand of God. So in the day of prosperity, be happy. But in the day of adversity, understand that God gave you both of them. Those are both from the Lord, because all those things are from Him. All those things are Him working out His will and His goals for him. And you and I, we can't look forward and say, I know what's going to happen. I know that if I behave this way, this good thing will happen. If I behave poorly, this bad thing will happen. And Solomon in this chapter is saying, you don't know that. You don't have the power to see that. We as human beings, as I apply all my wisdom and all my knowledge to the, to the existence that I have and how this world works, I know what the basic rules are, and when I apply them, I don't always see that that's how it works out. And yet God somehow works things all out for him. And ultimately, we learn that he works out for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes, or his purpose, but that doesn't negate what Solomon is teaching here. In fact, that says we're, we, he works all things out for the good of those who love him or are called according to his purpose, according to what he is accomplishing. That's what God is working out in our lives, and that's what Ecclesiastes is trying to teach us here. God works out his purpose for him. Man will not discover anything 
after him. And that after him is, is an interesting phrase. That doesn't just mean what takes place in the world after him. It's what takes place in the world because of his actions in the wake of his boat as he's going through the, the, the river of life. And that wake you leave, you have no control over that, over what takes place because of your actions. You can't look forward and see those things. And that's what we see as we carry on here in verse 15. I've seen everything during my lifetime of futility. Isn't that interesting? Richest man ever to live in, in uh, richest king that Israel ever had. His wealth was, was absurd. The wealth in Jerusalem at that time, all the nations came to this little tiny nation in the middle of the earth to see Solomon and experience his wisdom. And how does he describe his life? I have seen everything during my lifetime of futility. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his wickedness. Do not be excessively righteous and do not be overly wise. Why should you ruin yourself? And this is where it's going to get a little tricky, right? Do not be excessively wicked and do not be a fool. Why should you die before your time? Okay, 17 I got. 16, the fact that being excessively righteous and overly wise, I might ruin myself. Well, how does that happen? Well, that's, that's not just self-righteousness. That's letting the, the pursuit of, of trying to do everything correctly take all of the joy and suck all of the, the uh, what God has given you to be enjoyed, all of your thankfulness out of your life. And that's some of the futility that Solomon is looking at. So this isn't, this isn't again, a truth that we, want to, we just want to be really careful with this, that we don't say, well, okay, Solomon's telling me don't try to be holy because God is holy. He's not contradicting everything else that we've learned both before the time of Solomon and what came after him. But he is talking about the futility of this life. If you, if you pursue righteousness and everything, you're going to be miserable. But if you pursue foolishness, you're going to die young. It is good that you grasp one thing and not let go of the other. For the one who fears God comes forth with both of them. And this is the verse that makes the preceding two verses difficult. Because he does seem to be saying here that there is some wisdom to the fact that if you fear God, you can actually enjoy life and some of the things that are, are fleeting, as well as enjoying the, the, the gifts that wisdom and righteous living give you. You know, an example would be a man who not only enjoys the gift of marriage and that, that emotional, social, physical relationship with his wife that God has given him that is meant to be enjoyed and at the same time pursuing faithfulness to that woman and his family in righteousness and wisdom. And having those two things can both be held in the fear of God. I think that's the point he's trying to make in this. And I think often, as I read through Ecclesiastes, Solomon was a very, very wise man. He's far above me, and he is struggling here a lot. So the fact that I'm struggling, I take a little bit, I take it to heart that that's very understandable. 
Wisdom strengthens a wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. And, and again, that, that can make some sense that the one who is wise and speaks wisdom to people often carries more strength than, than ten people who are just using their might and their position to get their way. Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who, who continually does good and never sins. Also, do not take seriously all the words that are spoken so that you will not hear a servant cursing you. For you have realized that, for you also have realized that you likewise have many times cursed others. So verse 20, you're not, you're not perfect at all. In fact, we read back in Psalms 24, who's the righteous man? No one, no one is righteous. No one can ascend the holy hill. Who is it that can do that? And if you continue on in Psalms 24, you find that it describes Christ himself doing that. In fact, jump back there just really quick for you. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Who has a clean hands and a pure heart? Who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully? He shall receive a blessing from the Lord and the righteousness from the God of his salvation. And it says this in my translation, but such is probably a better word. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, even Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may, may come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. There, I just, in, in the last four verses there, we summarized Revelation for you. That's what it's all about. So, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. Only when God comes as man and God as king do we see that take place. And, and Solomon's father wrote of that. Solomon would be aware of that. Also, do not take seriously all the words which are spoken. So, basically, you know what? Part of the craziness of this life is that you're not faultless. And when you start dealing with the faults of others, understand that you yourself are going to have problems too. So use some grace and understanding. But there's no one who can righteously judge everybody. None of us can, because when we do so, we also have those problems. In fact, it's very true that we are most attentive and sensitive to the sins in our own lives when we see it in other people. The things that, that probably drive you craziest about other people's sins are the ones that you yourself struggle with. And that's why you see them clearly in others. So 23, I tested all this with wisdom and I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. What has been in, is remote and exceedingly mysterious. Who can discover it? And that's the part where I say, when you look back at the first 22 verses, if some of that just doesn't make good sense and some of it is really hard to deal with. And I read through your MacArthur notes and they're not going to help you a whole lot. Um, it's remote and exceedingly mysterious. Who can know it? Solomon's struggling with this. I directed my mind to know and investigate and to seek wisdom and an explanation and to know the evil of folly and the foolishness of madness. And now we're going to get interesting here. And I discovered more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are chains. 
One who is pleasing to God will escape from her, but the sinner will be captured by her. So here is this, this, I believe it's pointing to the adulterous woman that we would have seen back in, in Proverbs that is warned about. And it's interesting that this is, this is where he goes. Summarizing the, the difficulty he has understanding wisdom, and he's touched on the fact that none of us is righteous, none of us is perfect, and when we see faults in others, we have those faults ourselves. And now the big thing that he's warning of is this woman, this treacherous woman. These, the, the core of the relationship that God gave human beings with each other is man to woman. And as a man, he's looking out and he's seeing that, that this is the big thing I want to warn you about. But it's not just a warning, it's also an observation because that relationship was supposed to be a positive one between man and woman. And it was supposed to be one that they, they work together, they complement one another, they stand side by side, they have their different roles, a beautiful relationship, the family is built upon that. And yet he discovered more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are chains. And before men think, well, yeah, everything would be fine if we didn't have that. The whole thing never takes place if the man is pleasing to God because he escapes her and it never becomes a problem. So men, you take advantage of the opportunity as a sinner and you're captured by her. And then the problem starts. It's kind of the ultimate picture of relationships between men and women. And the problem there is, is laid at the feet of both sexes. Behold, I've discovered this, says the preacher, adding one thing to another to find an explanation. So just understand right now, he's trying to figure this all out. And he's talking about figuring all of this out and, and understanding everything. And he says, which I am still seeking. He's seeking the explanation, but have not found. I have found one man among a thousand, but I have not found a woman among all these. And it's not that I have not found a woman among a thousand men. That would make some sense. Um, what I'd like to do is just skip this verse because it is a little bit challenging, but we won't. I think what he's trying to say here is that to even have a conversation about what he's dealing with here and to have a, find a single person in, uh, we'll, we'll apply this locally to him, a single person in all Jerusalem who knows and can understand and carry out a conversation about this and the depth of what is wisdom and how does it affect our lives and what is the role under the sun. If you take God out of it, how does this all work out? Maybe one out of a thousand men will get it but it's even rarer among women. That's how I read it. Now, this is a translation from an ancient language that we can struggle with, but I also think there is some truth here about the, again, I mentioned it just briefly in passing, there are different roles between men and women. We each have a different role that God has given us, and um, women have a role that is just as important as men's role, but again, different. And I think the men's role in being the leader of the family, man, we don't have time to go through all this, but being the leader of the family and the one who stands among the family to uh, be the head 
and ultimately responsible. And I firmly believe that if you are a husband, you are ultimately responsible for the spiritual well-being of your, your wife and your family. Men are more in tune to things of God and wisdom, and I've been gifted in that regard. And women are more in tune to uh, more the earthly, in a good way, not earthly in a bad way, those earthly things that, that we need to take care of. They're much more sensitive to things like um, that are even mentioned in this passage about being careful what you say or taking offense. or um, they, It's tough. They are much more attuned to some of those earthly matters, the caring for and rearing up of the children, and also have to answer to God for that. But I'm just saying their roles are different and also their understandings of things are going to be different. They're going to come at it from a different perspective because of those roles. And I think I'll stop there. And I still may get stoned when I'm done. Um, More than happy to have a discussion with you afterwards about the different roles of men and women and how that works out. But I think that Solomon's pointing out that to us here. Behold, I have found only this, that God made men upright, but they have sought out many devices. He's acknowledging what he would have known through Genesis 1, that when God made man, he he said it is good. When God created the woman for the man, he said it was good. And that relationship with God and with one another is messed up. And I think he's saying, I, I think one of the big reasons we see the rest of chapter 7 being so convoluted and difficult to understand about our lives and wisdom and how things work is because of this very fact. That I made man right, but men pursued many devices. Men being mankind <clears throat> in, this, in this verse. Chapter 8 then, he makes a shift to talk then instead about rulers and the the authority that rulers have, who is like the wise man and who knows the interpretation of a matter. A man's wisdom illumines him and causes his stern face to beam, boasting in, in the benefits of wisdom and understanding and how it can actually help you even in tough times give you some grace to, to understand and, and, and rest in wisdom. I say, keep the command of the king because the oath before God. Do not be in a hurry to leave him. Do not join an evil matter, for he will do whatever he pleases. Since the word of the king is authoritative, who will say to him, what are you doing? Who, he who keeps a royal command experiences no trouble, for a wise heart knows the proper time and procedure. For there is a proper time and procedure for every delight, though a man's trouble is heavy upon him. If no one knows what will happen, who can tell him when it will happen? No man has authority to restrain the wind, and the wind, or wind with the wind, or the authority over the day of death. There is no discharge in the time of war, and evil will not deliver those who practice it. All this I have seen and applied in my mind to every deed that has been done under the sun, wherein a man has exercised authority over another man to his hurt. So it's, it's kind of nice that he puts verse 9 in there. It's, it would have been better, I think, if he had put it as verse 1. Because it kind of explains to you what he's looking at in verses 1 through 8. He's looking at those examples of when man has authority over other men. How do you, how do you live through that? And what's, what's wisdom when you deal with those who have authority over others? 
with the acknowledgement that when you put people in authority over other people, the common rule is that those, peop those people in authority will take advantage of those beneath them. Eventually, they do. Power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. So when we read through this, we see that uh, basically you better watch your step. Verse 2, I think, is speaking of the fact that God is the one who puts rulers in above you. You could say it's because God is, has made an oath to Solomon that they follow Solomon, but I think this is applied beyond just Solomon. So God is the one who puts rulers and authorities in place just as he did the relationship between men and women. Now he's talking about that relationship between government and those governed. And he's looking at this, trying to find wisdom, and he's seeing that even there, you have to be really careful about what you say, when you say it, and what you do, and time it correctly. You think of Esther approaching the king. She was doing when it wasn't the proper time or procedure and, and was putting her life at risk for doing so. That's the culture that this is written in. We have no control over our lives when it deals with the authorities that are over us. No one knows what will happen. Who can tell him when it will happen? No man has authority to, to restrain the wind or authority over the day of death, and there's no discharge in the time of war, and evil will not deliver those who practice it. I think that's all talking about in relationship to the authorities above you. We can take it outside of that, and, and it's easy to apply the, the thought that um, even here it's talking about those who are in authority really don't have ultimate authority. They don't have ultimately the ultimate authority over death. They don't have ultimate authority of the wind or, or the weather or the climate. But they do have the authority over you to do as they see fit with you. So verse 10, So then I have seen the wicked buried those who used to go in and out of the holy place and they are soon forgotten in the city where they did this this too is futility the outcome is the same for both the wicked and those who are going in and out of of the temple to worship god they're all eventually forgotten and this is futility because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly therefore the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil even when grace is given and understanding and compassion, and we have that in our legal system, right? We don't sentence people quickly. You're supposed to. It's part of the Constitution. Anyway, um, we, we take our time and we drag things out. And we do so because we're trying to be gracious and understanding and give people every benefit of the doubt. But even when that's applied, it causes the, the hearts of the sons of men are given fully to do evil. They see that it's not executed quickly. Hey, I can get away with it too. We see that all the time now. Although a sinner does evil a hundred times and may lengthen his life, still I know that it will be well for those who fear God who fear Him openly. And he keeps coming back to, even under the sun, those who fear God, it has to be better for those people. Just as we saw back in verse 18 of chapter 7, the one who grasps one thing and the other who fears God comes forth with both of them. I think the God-fearers here are the ones he's actually lifting up in the middle of all this chaos. But it will not be well for the evil man, and he will not lengthen his days like the shadow, because he does not fear God. This is a paraphrase, 12 and 13, or a paraphrase of Psalms 1. 
that we read, or Psalm 1 that we read earlier. Verse 14, there is a futility which is done on the earth. That is, there are righteous men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. On the other hand, there are evil men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I say this too is futility. And we think back of when we studied Job, and Job, this was his complaint. He's like, I am being punished as though I'm one of the wicked. I am not. I know I'm not. And his, his friends that came to him believe the same. They're like, no, this makes no sense, Job, because if you're being punished this bad, you have to be wicked. Solomon, who, who probably preserved that book and had it, had it uh, commissioned, even though it was written well before his time, probably has that in mind here as he's writing to us about these deeds. It just doesn't make sense. So I commended pleasure. So the outcoming, uh, the, 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 the result of saying, okay, if I do good things, bad things could happen to me. If I do bad things, good things could happen to me. So how do I deal with it? Well, I commend pleasure. There's nothing good for a man under the sun except to eat and drink and be merry. And this will stand by him in, in his toils throughout the days of his life, which God has given him under the sun. For added emphasis, he mentions under the sun twice here. And I just say, just be aware that God is gracious to non-believers, for those that aren't in the church, for those who don't know Christ, or even those who have rejected Christ. God gives them a special grace here where they can actually still, even in this crazy world that doesn't make sense, he's given them the opportunity to eat and drink and be merry. But that can't be the end of it, can it? That we put up with all the grief and the, and the incongruity of wickedness and evil and their outcomes that we see on this earth, just so for those times when we can eat and drink and be merry. When I gave my heart to know wisdom and to see the task which has been done on the earth, even though one should never sleep day or night, I'm, even if I stayed awake forever and worked on this and I saw every work of God, I concluded that man cannot discover the work which has been done under the sun. Even though man should seek laboriously, he will not discover. And though the man should say, I know, he cannot discover. There's a song by you too, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And in that, it mentions the wealth and the things and and the knowledge and women and the relationships and even makes allusions to Christ himself and the cross. But he's still lurking, he's still searching. He didn't find in any of that what he was looking for. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And we'd be remiss to think that somehow this world, when man fell, that God himself stepped back and just let things fall apart. And that he's just going to step back in at the end to set things right again. And that's not, that's not how this works. That's not what God's ultimate plan with us is. Let's turn over to 1 Corinthians 1.
Let's start in verse 20. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? So this is Paul writing New Testament after Christ, speaking of a man such as Solomon, a wise man, the man who was, who was a scribe, a man who actually wrote and authored Scripture, not just recorded it. The great debater, the one who people would bring questions to and would bring challenges to to test his wisdom. The one who had more knowledge and understanding of the creation of God's world than anyone before him and probably anyone after him, save Christ himself. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And I think that's what we see in Ecclesiastes 7 and 8, is the foolishness of this world. As you apply wisdom of the world, it's, it all boils down to foolishness. For since the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. So when God looked at this world and saw what we would describe as wisdom, it pleased God to use foolishness to save the world. The foolishness of God is greater than the wisdom of men. So Ecclesiastes 7 and 8 should be incredibly humbling to us. So, so how is it that he was well pleased through foolishness of the message preached to save those for, to believe? For indeed, Jews ask for a sign and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. To the Jews, he's a stumbling block and to the Gentiles, he's foolishness. The Gentiles want a hero. The Gentiles would say... If you are the Christ, if you are the Son of God, how is it you were killed? That makes no sense. None of our heroes die on a cross and then go away. That's foolishness. The Jews themselves would be, well, there's only one God. How can you be God and God the Father be God? This makes no sense. There's a, you, you, the, the challenges that Jesus Christ was to the Jewish people are innumerable. One of the greatest challenges that they had, even among his own followers, you'll remember when Peter gets accused of using satanic devices to try and trick Jesus and is told to get, get behind him, it's the idea of setting up that religion on earth right now. Bring the kingdom now, Jesus. Let's just set it up and go. And Jesus is like, no, that's not what this is about. Applying the wisdom of this world, Peter was ready to make Christ king right then and there. No, the wisdom of God was foolishness. Christ actually came to die upon a cross for our sins. So, so stumbling block for the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, or all, are the called, a def definite group of people, both of the Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brethren. This is you guys. Not many of you are wise according to the flesh. Not many of you are noble. But God has chosen you, the foolish things of the world. Me, the foolish things of the world, to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world 
to shame things that are strong. The base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. Because you see, if we walk through this life and if I give you a list of here's all the righteous things that you can do and here's the results of when you're righteous, like Ecclesiastes is saying, like Job's friends told Job, like Job believed at that time. If I give you a list of here's the results of being wise, here's what's going to happen, you would go out and pursue those things and get the glory for everything you've done. Here Paul is saying, the exact reason the wisdom of man is foolishness to God is because no man gets to boast before God about what he's done and what he's accomplished. But it's by his doing that you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that just as is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Just to quote one other song, and then we'll close. You're going to face things in your life. When you face them, you're going to ask why. And you're going to want to know the reason. And I will tell you right now, you will not find it in some situations. You can't. Not on this side of eternity. Not with all things. With some things, it's obvious why God did what he did. God allowed us to be at a restaurant where we get the opportunity to witness to a waitress because the other restaurant's closed. Hey, that's great. We have a reason why that restaurant was closed now. God wanted us over here. But that's not always the case. Don't go looking for the reasons. Don't go asking Jesus why. We're not meant to know the answers. They belong to the by and by. That's a, that's, that's a tough thing for us as Christians to grasp because we want this book, when we read it, to give us all the answers. And Solomon didn't have all the answers. Solomon had interactions with, with God that were personal, different than the personal interaction you have with God here. We have some advantages. He certainly has some advantages. But there are things that God has hidden from us that we never get to know and understand. But what he has revealed to us and what he has set in your heart, if you believe, is that Jesus was the Christ and he came and he died for your sins on the cross to sanctify and redeem a people for himself that he might get glory. So that when you boast, you don't boast in I have fulfilled wisdom and I have fulfilled righteousness. Instead, you boast in Christ himself. And you try in this life to get through this life And the hope that you have that makes you smile even when your face is crying is in Jesus Christ and is in what He has accomplished because that is how God has set up the world. His wisdom is the Savior and the King on the cross crucified. But as we're learning in church, that's not how this all ends. My Savior will be on this earth ruling from his throne someday. And that's what I look forward to greater than, than anything else. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you that you have given us an understanding of 
how difficult this world is through the wisest man that lived, the man who had the best understanding of all things and spent the most time trying to show and figure it out. And he found that the wisdom of this world is foolishness. And we just thank you that, Lord, the foolishness that you sent in a suffering servant to be our Savior. Lord, we thank you for that wisdom. And we thank you that we don't boast in that. We don't get to brag that we figured out or we chose it or we pursued it. Lord, instead, we're just humbled because we would never choose Jesus Christ as our Lord on the surface of things. Lord, we don't boast. We allow you to boast. And we enjoy your glory because it's a holy and perfect glory. It's in your son's name we pray these things. Amen.